Thank you, Russ and Joel and others that went to all that trouble to drag out all those pictures that should have been burned years ago. Did you? Uh, did, I hope you all learned that any pictures that you have around your house that you want, you, you wouldn't like to be um, honored with in public, you ought to get rid of. Isn't that incredible? I mean, they just go back. They don't. They don't. Our kids did that to us, I guess. Well, that was fun. Thank you very much. But uh, you know, the Lord, the Lord really helped me remember our anniversary this time. It's it's pretty easy because it's the first of a month. But uh, if you recall what happened last Thursday morning at um, 7:42, that was our anniversary. And as that tremor came. I turned to Lloyd and I said, happy anniversary, you know, and she thought I'd forgotten, you know, it's, uh, the Lord really may be one of the reasons he allowed that to occur right then was so I didn't forget my anniversary. How many of you experienced your first earthquake last Thursday? Boy, that's quite a few. How many, what do you think of them? Is that, do you enjoy that? Would you like a lot more? Yeah. You know, I enjoyed the first couple about a year ago, but uh, Luetta was just having her first one, and she didn't enjoy it at all. I've never seen her really afraid like that. It really, it really got her attention. And you know, since last Thursday morning at 7:42, 7:42 a.m., this whole community of Southern California has been traumatized. I mean, those of us who are in the body of Christ, and we understand that the Creator and Sustainer of the universe either allowed that to occur or caused it to occur because he's in full control and we can we can have great comfort in that but for the people of our communities for the millions in southern california who put their security in their things in their things in their possessions were rudely reminded that all that they have their security in can be removed and destroyed within a few seconds add to that folks who somehow have a, a just an unconscious uh, awareness that they're in control of their lives suddenly are startled into realizing that they aren't in control of their lives. And those who somehow feel they're invincible, how somehow death and, and serious illness and disease would fall upon only other people, they're, they're suddenly startled into realizing it could happen to them. And they read about people being killed in an earthquake over in the next town, and they realize it could have happened to them. And there are people that are trying to move out of California. I was on an airplane on Saturday morning early flying up to Seattle. And as I overheard people talking in line as they were getting their seat assignments, most of them seemed to be leaving here to go to Seattle to find a new job, to get away before the next earthquake comes. Our community has been literally traumatized by those tremors that have been occurring over the weekend. About 80 million in damage, I guess they're estimating. Six people died, around 100 people injured. That's just a, a little earthquake, a moderate-sized earthquake. But it has turned the lives upside down of, of millions of people. Now, there are people that are still living outside. If you read in the paper, they have been afraid to sleep in their house since last Thursday morning. They're, they're afraid their house will fall down, and so they're sleeping outside. But our God is in full control of that, isn't he? And I think his timing is fantastic, considering the mission outreach that we have coming up. You are going to encounter people next week when you go out, when you go door to door, when you go to the universities, when you go on your various assignments, you're going to encounter people who have been awakened by the earthquake. They're unsure of who they are and what they're doing here, where they're coming from and where they're going. 
And by the grace of God and by his empowerment in your life, you're going to be able to take advantage of that in a tremendous way. There were a couple of times in my life when, when God had gone before in lives of people where I had opportunity to come in, kind of, it seemed, at the last minute and seize opportunities. I want to tell you two of those. In one particular case, I was working in a church in Ohio, and it was a church where we had a very good relationship with the local hospitals, and when people would have a spiritual need, they would just call and say, send over a pastor. And so on this one particular day, they, they called, and, and, and my secretary came in with this message. She said, Akron City Hospital is called, and, and there's a doctor over there who needs a pastor. Well, that's the first time we'd ever heard it that way. There's a physician who is crying for a doctor, for, for a pastor. Could, could someone go over? I said, that sounds really interesting. I think I'll go myself. And so over to the hospital, I went immediately, and I found out which floor, and I got the elevator, went up, got off the elevator, started walking down towards that particular room. And in front of that room, there were all this big series of equipment. It looked like they'd moved the operator. All this equipment out in the hall in front of the room, and a big crowd of people, including the president of the hospital. And they were all there, and they'd done all they could do. And one of their staff, a physician, they felt was dying, and they were unable to do anything to help him. Medical science had come to the end of its limit. And they were calling for a pastor. And as they saw me coming down the hall, and they, they quickly got the word into the room, and those who were attending in the room all came running out, and it was, here comes the pastor. He's the only one that maybe has an answer for Dr. Arnie Abreu. And as I walked in and walked over to the side of his bed, and because death seemed so imminent, but he was very alert, very alert and ready to talk. And I walked up to him, and without going through... A lot of preparation, I said, Dr. Abru, have you ever by faith received Christ as your Savior? And he said, no. I said, do you understand the gospel message? Do you understand that he has died for your sins and, and that you need to repent and turn from where you've been and, and put your trust in him? Ask him to forgive your sins. He said, yes, I understand all of that and I want to do it right now. And I said, would you pray a sinner's prayer after me? And as I prayed, you could hear him all done through that corridor in that hospital as he prayed from the top of his lungs and as he received Christ as his Savior. All that, those hospital personnel, including the, the president, observed that and hearing that within ear range. The man got well after that and then started coming to church, became a member of our church and got involved in our medical fellowship. And to this day, he's living and still practicing. But God saw fit in his sovereignty and his providence to bring that doctor to himself in that moment of trauma. There are people out there all over Los Angeles County that you're going to encounter who, who are afraid they're going to die right now. Their hearts are going to be ready for you as you come to bring the message of Christ. And there was another time the same hospital called. They called and they said, there's a young man over here, a young executive, and he's just been told that he has two weeks to live and he can't handle it. Could someone come over and talk to him? I went over into that hospital and went to that particular floor. And what I always do if I'm not sure whether the patient really wants me is send a nurse in to get me an invitation. So the nurse went in and said, Pastor Provost is here. Would you like him to come in to speak with you? And he said, yes. I could hear him yelling out, yes. And I, as I walked in, this big, strapping, young, handsome man, young, I say, some of you won't say a, say young when I say he was 40, but he was in top physical condition. Six months previous, he had had an executive physical. He's very athletic. He thought he was in the top prime of his life. But as I walked into that hospital room, he, he was laying on his back. He had his hands above his head like this, and he was screaming out, I can't cope, I can't cope, I can't cope. I went and sat down beside him, and he told me a story about how he had thought that he was in full control of his life. Those were his words. He said, I thought I was in full control of my life. My career couldn't be going better. 
He said, just, just 10 days ago, I was with my wife and daughter on a cruise in the Caribbean. And I became violently ill, and they had to bring a helicopter on the ship to, act, to, to, to remove me and to take me to the mainland. And they brought me right up here to Akron City Hospital, and I got in here this morning. And they said, uh, and they're only going to leave me here for a few moments. I'm going to move, be moved again this afternoon to Cleveland Clinic, because that's the best hospital in the country, they feel, for what they think is wrong with me. But he said, when I arrived here this morning, and they reviewed the reports, and they've done some preliminary work, they've said... They said, we're, we're sorry to tell you, sir, but we think you have less than two weeks to live. And he said, I can't handle that. I can't handle that. What am I going to do? What about my wife and what about my 13-year-old daughter? And as we talked probably for no more than five minutes about the sovereignty of God and about God's love for him and, I, and about how he was a sinner in need of a savior, and God had so prepared his heart, even in that moment of, of trauma. But you could tell that, that he fully understood and grasped what we were about to do. And so I said, would you like to pray with me and receive Christ as your Savior? He said, yes, certainly would. And so we prayed, and he prayed so loudly that you could hear him all over the hospital, all done, just yelling, praying that God would save him. And then a moment of total calm and peace came over him as he had finished his prayer. And it was just obvious to anyone that this was a changed life who was now at peace with God. That's the only time I had, I've ever seen that man. I left there, went back to the church. They moved him to, to, to another hospital, the one I had mentioned, Cleveland Clinic. And then I sent one of our staff members to see him in the Cleveland Clinic the next day. And he came back the day after, and he reported what he had encountered. And he said, I went to see, and I can't remember his name, so-and-so. And he said his wife was there. And as I walked in, the man was perfectly at peace, and he was ready to go to be to heaven, and ready to go to heaven, except for one thing. He said, you've got to help me get my wife saved. I've been talking with her ever since they brought me in here yesterday and telling her about Christ. And, but so far, she's, she's not willing to receive Christ as her Savior and my daughter. How can you help me get my daughter saved? Well, the fellow lived about two more days and died, and I had the opportunity to do his funeral. But to this day, I'm not aware that his wife or his daughter have ever accepted the Lord. However, I just wanted to share that as a point of how a sovereign God brings people and circumstances together when he wants to, to give you a privilege of bringing someone into the kingdom. Turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians in chapter 3, to the book of Colossians in chapter 3. When you go out this, this next week to share your faith, many of you are going to be doing that for the first time in your lives. We realize that for the very first time, and you may be scared to death about the prospect of doing it. Even as you would be turning there, something I, I want to encourage you to do between now and the time of the mission outreach. I want to encourage you to focus on each other. I want to encourage you to, to not pass another student or a faculty person as you walk on campus, <clears throat> as you approach a classroom, as you're in the dining room. Just don't walk past anyone without smiling and saying hello. Start, start to have that kind of countenance and that motion towards each other that conveys love, that conveys love. Have a spirit of moving towards one another, <clears throat> excuse me, in love. And you will be surprisingly ready to encounter people next week that you've never met before who are lost and dying and headed for hell. Just do that. Concentrate on that each day as you would really purpose in your hearts to practice, practice your smiling, have that sincere smile, and be giving and manifesting the love of Christ on this campus even more than you normally do, and you'll be surprised how it will help you get ready. 
in these two chapters, in Colossians 3 and, chap- and Colossians 4, especially in the latter part of chapter 3 and then into the, in the chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is giving instruction here concerning daily living, concerning the relationships of daily life, concerning family, and concerning employment. And so he's talking here concerning what we do each day of our lives. He talks first up in, in verse 17 of chapter 3. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Whatever we do, do in the character of Christ. Do in a way that manifests him. Do in a way that honors him in every way. <clears throat> you know that one of the key reasons that, that we're so excited about you being here at the Master's College is because we've purposed faculty and staff together to help you become equipped so that you can manifest Christ through your excellence, whatever career field God is calling you into, whether you're going to be an accountant or a teacher or a coach or a homemaker or a missionary or a pastor or whatever God has in mind for you that's special for you, it doesn't matter. Whatever that is, we want to equip you so you can be among the best at what you do. And being among the best at what you do, then you attract people to your character, especially those of you who will be in secular professions and those around the world, as they would observe the quality of your performance as you do and serve and live your life with excellence as unto the Lord. Then they pay attention to your character. And when they pay attention to your character, when you're walking in godly obedience, then they see how different you are. And then they want to know why you're so different. And you can do that. And it's effective in every country in the world, beginning here in America. And so then he, he talks to the wives and he tells them they should submit themselves to their husbands as it is fit in the Lord. And then husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. Knowing that if the Lord of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect of persons. Masters or employers, give unto your servants or your employees that which is just and equal, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And so within that setting, within the setting of daily family life, within the setting of daily work in the workplace, whether employer or employee, he then, in that setting, begins to give these instructions concerning how to be ready and how to be effective in sharing your faith. Look at this closely. This is just dynamite, just tremendous instruction from the Word of God. And it seems here in verse 2, as he, as he makes three points that he seems to be saying here, if you really want to be ready to serve me when the opportunities come, here's, here's, the, here's the mindset that you need to be in. First, he says, continue in prayer. Have a life that is characterized by prayer. And even as you think of next week, be praying, be praying concerning. Be praying concerning every detail of the days in which you're going to go out to share your faith. Pray concerning the weather. Pray, pray concerning your health. Pray concerning transportation. Pray concerning every detail, realizing your utter and total dependence upon the Lord to go before you in those days in special ways. <clears throat> pray concerning, and we'll come to that in the next verses, concerning the people that you're going to encounter and how that God would prepare their hearts when you come. But be people of prayer. You probably, maybe all of you aren't aware that when Dr. MacArthur became president in May of 1985, we began having on Monday mornings here at the Master's College a management prayer meeting. We begin at 7.30 in prayer over in our boardroom in Rutherford Hall. 
And we, we are usually in prayer up until 9.15 or 9.30, usually about two hours. Most of that time, much of that time, on our knees. Always finish on our knees for an extended period of time. Crying out in our utter dependence upon our wonderful God for all that we are, all that we need. And he has honored that in tremendous ways. And many of the rest of you are becoming men and women of prayer. And it is vital if you want God to use you. Secondly, says, watch in the same. Watch in the same. Be alert. Not only be prayerful, but be alert. Be excited about what God is going to do in your life. Be alert. Be watchful. <clears throat> and being watchful also carries with it the, the, the understanding that, that God is working and he's going to bring people and circumstances into your life in unique combinations and in, in unique arrangements that he has in mind just to use you. That's pretty exciting. And that includes things like earthquakes just a few days before you're going out to share your faith. To be, if you get in the pattern of getting up in the morning and before you go to work, before you go out to encounter unsaved people especially, it doesn't have to only be in the realm of sharing your faith. But if you get in that mindset excuse me, of, of being excited about what God is going to bring into your life each day, then and you won't have so much tendency to miss that. Some of us who are goal-oriented have a tendency to write down a do list write down a do list and here's what I'm going to do today here are all the priorities and then we never look up from that and sometimes God has much better things in mind for us in that day we have to be ready to look up from our do list and be able ready to respond as he brings people and circumstances uniquely into our lives so to be prayerful to be alert and third <clears throat> excuse me I don't know what's wrong with my voice today and thirdly be thankful to be watch to be continuing in prayer and to be alert and with thanksgiving to be thankful to be in a positive perspective. And it's so vital to be thankful, so vital to have a thankful heart. A few years ago, I was planning a Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving message, and I went through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. I looked at all the verses that relate to giving thanks. And at the end of that point of time, I became convinced that if I was ever given opportunity to participate in writing a doctrinal statement, that, that a major doctrine of every church should be the... <clears throat> excuse me... <clears throat> The doctrine of thanksgiving, the doctrine of giving thanks to our God. It's very, very important to God that we have a thankful heart. And when you think about that for a moment, it seems that thankfulness and sinfulness may be mutually exclusive. When you think about how you think and your, your mind is, <clears throat> when you have a thankful heart, you don't think things that you shouldn't think. When your heart is overflowing with gratitude and praise to our God, you don't even have the wrong kind of thoughts. Certainly don't say the things. When you're trying to get words back, that usually doesn't occur if you have a thankful heart. And certainly, almost never are we in a, in a deed of sin when our hearts are overflowing with thanksgiving. And so he seems to be saying, if you want to be ready for God to use you, be prayerful, be alert, and be thankful. And you can remember that in an acronym by the letters P-A-T. You can have a pat mindset. Have a pat mindset, being ready for God to use you. <clears throat> and then he says in verse 3, and of course Paul was talking from, from a point of, of being in, in bonds himself, and he's asking them to pray, saying, With all praying also for us, that God would open unto us a door of utterance, to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds. And to be praying that way between now and next week, that, as, that God would be opening doors for you all over this city, opening doors at CSUN and Pierce College and Valley College, and opening doors as you go to door and door with the Eye Care program, with Grace Baptist, or with the, with the program for the children, or with the Baja trip, all of the programs that we have. Be praying that God would be going before and opening specific doors for you. Verse 4, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. 
be praying that that you would that you would be effective in your speech, that you would be effective, that you would be manifesting Christ in the way that you would speak in seizing those opportunities. And verses five and six are the two that I love the most. Thank you, Paul. That's a great chaplain. Thank you. In the King James, verse 5 is just incredible. It says, walk in wisdom toward them that are without. Walk in wisdom toward them that are without. I believe that in this context, he must be talking about a quality that should characterize all of our lives. That that our lives should be characterized by motion towards the unsaved people. As you hear Doc, would hear Dr. MacArthur from time to time say that he believes that if, that if the Lord had saved us primarily for worship, he'd take us to heaven where the worship would be unhindered. If he had saved us primarily for fellowship, we'd be in heaven where the fellowship would be as rich as it could be. But apparently that when he saved us and he's left us here on planet Earth for a season, we are here to take the message of Christ. He's not willing that any should perish. We're here to continue as, a, as character qualities of our lives to be in motion towards the unsaved. Redeeming the time, buying up the opportunities as those opportunities come. And when we're prayerful and when we're alert and thankful, we're going to be able to recognize those opportunities when they're there and seize those opportunities to give the message of Christ. And then he talks about how we ought to be talking, how we should even talk with them in verse 6. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. There's so many Christians who've been taught by example the wrong ways of sharing your faith. There's so many that go around hitting people on the head with their 20-pound Schofield Bibles and trying to then drag them into the kingdom. Have you ever seen anyone do that? Have you ever seen anyone be saved by that kind of a process? I had an experience on the airplane going up to to Seattle. I always try to, I I get excited about who God is going to put next to me on airplanes. If you believe at all in the sovereignty of God, you must believe that whoever sits next to you on an airplane is someone that God has placed there. And when I sometimes have so much work to do in these days that I have to work on airplanes, I got on a great guilt trip because I, I seemingly don't have the time to talk to the guy next to me about the Lord. And I've been very convicted about that recently. And so on this trip, I was very careful to put aside my work. And there was a young man next to me, heading for Seattle. Handsome young man, bearded, and and uh, he was seemed to be writing out some, some technical things. And so when they came to serve his breakfast, then it was a good time to talk. And so I started a conversation with him, found that he was a biologist and working on a very interesting job, Don, uh, as a consultant in near San Diego, uh, working on a project. His job is to try to figure out how to influence some environmental conditions there. Uh, so that a little tiny bird that's an endangered species could survive. And so he had a lot of, a lot of interest, wanted to tell me all about that. Well, that would naturally lead in to discussion concerning the origin of the planet, the origin of, of life. Told me where he'd gone to college and where to graduate school, and so I knew where he'd be coming from. I knew that he would be well-steeped in the evolutionary theories. And as he would share that with me, and as he would come down through that and trying to explain and convince me, trying to, that, that evolution was the, was the way to explain how we got where we are. But he, was, but he was very candid, and he said, you know, he said, all that somehow makes sense, makes sense to me the way that they have taught it to me, except for one thing. No one has been able to tell me at the university how something came from nothing. No one's been able to tell me how, how the planet how the solar system, how the universe was one day not here and the next day it was here. Whatever theory of Big Bang or whatever about how it happened, how did, how did something, all of this, come out of nothing? 
And he said, the other challenge I have, the other challenge I have is concerning life. The evolutionary theories try to explain how from the first life down to where we are now, and all that seems, he said, to make sense. And I didn't argue with him through that, naturally, at that point. And so, but he said, how did the first life get on planet? How, the first life was something out of nothing. How could that be? And he turned to me and he said, he said, there must be a supreme being. There must be a God. Or how else could it be explained? Well, we talked further, and then we talked uh, a little bit about the Bible. At this point, he's not ready to believe the Bible. He's not ready to say that this is God's word. He thinks it's a bunch of fairy tales. He's been taught that. But is he ever open? And, and Dr. George Howe, if you're here today, he wants to have dialogue with you, and we'll begin some communication, some correspondence that way. But in this particular case, if I, if, I had, if I had just begun to tell him about Christ in that situation, he would have just laughed at me. We've got to walk in wisdom as best we can. And then you walk away from that and you say, well, why didn't I say this or why didn't I say that? Well, God only asks us to be faithful. We're frail. I mean, we are not effective. People don't get into the kingdom based on how clever we are. No one that you seek to minister to next week is going to get saved or not saved based on how clever you are. No, it's going to be based upon our faithfulness and the sovereignty of God. God doesn't need us to bring anybody into the kingdom. He gives us this tremendous privilege to be a part of that process. Something occurred in my life that I shared once before in chapel some time ago that is, has been the most dramatic most the dramatic experience about a sovereign God and how he moves people and things into position when he's ready, when he's ready to penetrate a heart and bring a soul into the kingdom. And I want to close by sharing a story with you that I told once before. Just after Dr. MacArthur had asked us to come and be a part of the Master's College, we then were back taking a group of high school students in the Caribbean on a mission trip. My wife and I together and Todd was a part of that. He was a senior in high school. We were on a little island in the eastern Caribbean called St. Kitts. And we had, we had pre-planned this program so that we had 25 students and, and they were going door to door as many of you are going to be doing in the next week. They were going door to door in a situation where Christian radio had pre-evangelized tremendously. I mean, like everybody on that island could quote the gospel to you and John 3.16 and many other verses. But no one had ever come on the island and, and asked them to make a commitment to Christ. They knew it intellectually, but they hadn't made any heart commitments and they were unsaved. And so we were on this island for about two weeks going door to door and people were getting saved by the droves every day. And these young high school kids were just thrilled to see God them use, use them in that way. And towards the end of that two weeks, towards the end of that two weeks, we learned that there was a leper colony on the other end of the island, about 40 miles away. And so we decided that would be a wonderful thing for our high school students to experience a leper colony and what would be there. And so we got some vans and we drove over to the leper colony. And as we drove in, they were located in an abandoned French fort that went back to about 1750 and the buildings were all broken down and I, I haven't been in many places that looked worse than this. And we looked over on one little broken down porch and there were four people sitting there, two women and two men. And as we approached, we could see that the leprosy had just devastated their bodies. Where their, their limbs and their fingers and their faces were, were grotesquely distorted. But as we went up and introduced ourselves, there was something about them immediately. The radiance of Christ, I've never experienced anywhere with anyone so much manifestation of Christ as through these lepers, except one. The two women and one of the men were Christians, and they had been Christians for years. 
And it was just a, a wonderful joy. They had nothing of this world's goods. They had no reason to be joy except the joy of the Lord. Joyful except the joy of the Lord. And, and they, they were the happiest people I've ever met. <clears throat> and so we gathered and the two ladies each gave a word of testimony. And then one of the men gave a word of testimony. They sang little songs for us. And they, they didn't sound real pretty, but you heard their heart and it was beautiful. And so then we came to the, to the fourth man, and began to, I began to talk with him, and his name was Joseph. And found out that Joseph wasn't a Christian. And Joseph said something like this. He said, I have wanted to become a Christian for nearly 25 years. I've been here together with these folks, and I see the joy in their lives. And I have wanted to become a Christian all this time. He then kind of chimed in, and they said, and we've been praying for him daily for all these years that he would become a Christian. And he said, but I've been unable to surrender. I just can't let go of my life. I just can't give it over to God, even though I know that's what I need to do. And so we gathered around and we held hands, all these high school teenagers, and we held hands with the lepers in front, down in front of their porch. And we had a season of prayer together. And it was a very moving experience, very moving for all those young people. And we prayed that God would open his heart. And then we said goodbye and walked and went back to our vans. And as we were <clears throat> approaching getting in the vans, I had no freedom to leave that place. And I told the others I was going to go back and talk with them a moment further. And so I went back and walked up. He was still on the porch and the ladies were still there with him. I walked up and I said, Joseph, I had the same problem. I had known the gospel from a child intellectually I, and I'd never questioned the authority of the Bible I always knew it was God's word being taught that as a child and, and I knew that I needed to surrender to Christ to turn from my evil ways and ask him to forgive my sins I knew what I needed to do I knew how to pray the prayer but I was unwilling to do it I couldn't surrender until I was 28 years of age and I told him a little bit how that ha had happened how Loretta had been at home on her knees praying as she had encouraged me to go to an evangelistic crusade, but she stayed home and prayed the whole afternoon. How that was the day that God chose to, to open my heart. And I was finished saying that. I looked up to Joseph, the leper, and I said, Is this the day? Is this the day? Are you ready today to surrender to Christ? And he said, Yes. And so we prayed. I prayed and he prayed after me and we finished praying. And I, I turned to the other three and I said, now you've got a disciple. Do you have a Bible? And Joseph said, well, I can't read. The leprosy has destroyed my, my vision. And so we, we arranged to send him a tape recorder and the New Testament on tape so they could use that in working with him. And then we said goodbye and left. Well, that, that next morning, maybe it was that, I think it was that afternoon, I got on a little airplane, left everybody else and flew over to another island. To get on board the Operation Mobilization Ship Lagos, which happened to be a few hundred miles away, ministering on another island. And that evening, as I, as I sat with the captain of the ship, and I shared about what had happened to that leper colony that day. And I, and I said, where are you guys going from here? And he said, where did you, which island did you say you were on? I said, St. Kitts. He said, we're going to be there in about two weeks. I said, do you think... You could go over, maybe take some of your people and go over and encourage these lepers, especially Joseph, and help him in his new faith and help him in his growth as a babe in Christ in these early days. And he said, let me see what I can do. Well, about two weeks after I got home, I got a letter from that ship captain. And he said, you won't believe what happened. You know, he said, I forgot when we were talking, but we were on St. Kitts on Easter morning. And we took a whole group and we took musical people and we went over and we had a great praise service with the lepers on Easter morning. 
And he said, Joseph's doing great, growing like crazy. And it was just one of the most wonderful spiritual experiences that we've ever had there with those four lepers on Easter morning. Do you get the picture? 25 high school seniors that God wanted to see him. God wanted them to see him work in an incredible way. He made it possible in the clock of all of eternity so they could be on this little island and meet these lepers and experience the joy that they had in the Lord. And then, and then the icing on the cake to be able to, to be a part and praying that God would open the heart of the one leper and then to see him come to Christ. But it doesn't stop there. Then our wonderful sovereign God is moving an ocean-going vessel that he had in mind right into that island on which day as Easter, as the resurrection would be celebrated, to be right there with that leper named Joseph. Into each of your lives in the next ten days are going to come many Josephs. Many Josephs. Many people that God has planned in eternity past for them to meet you. If that doesn't get you excited... I don't know what could. Let's pray together.